0: thank you again for joining us at Prairie View. We're happy to be with you this morning. Last week, we read in John chapter 6, seeing several themes that connect Jesus's ministry to Moses's ministry in the time of the Exodus. We talked about how Jesus had the divine power and authority to feed 5,000 men with only two small fish and five loaves of bread. And the last time a miraculous feeding like that occurred was when God provided his people with manna from heaven in the wilderness during the exodus. We also saw Jesus display divine power and authority over the sea, walking on the sea in the midst of a storm. And the only person with that kind of power and authority, again, is God himself, like when he parted the Red Sea during the exodus. And these displays of power and authority culminate in Jesus declaring for everyone to hear that he is the bread of life, that he alone can sustain them forever, that he alone can give them eternal life. Now, how exactly can he claim to do this? Well, it's because he will give his own life on the cross for the life of the world. We celebrate that truth every single week when we take communion. Jesus's broken body symbolized by the bread, his poured out blood symbolized by the juice. But today we shift to chapter seven and eight of John's gospel. And to be totally honest, there is enough material here to last several sermons, not just one. But what we discuss today connects well to how we ended our sermon last week. If you remember, we ended last week with the inconvenient truth that all people, you, me, everyone in between, we are all slaves to sin. We may not have a physical ball and chain around our ankles. We may not have a cruel master physically whipping our backs, but we still need deliverance. And as great as Moses was in the Old Testament, and he was great, We need an even greater leader, a greater Savior, a greater deliverer. Because sin is much more powerful and much more ruthless than any hard hearted Pharaoh. And the consequences of sin are far greater than a life of physical servitude in Egypt. The consequence for sin is eternal punishment. But thankfully, we do have a leader, we do have a Savior we do have a deliverer who is up to this great task of setting us free. So open your Bibles to John chapter 7, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for... New faces, old faces, people that we know so well, and people that we don't know so well either. Thank you that we can come from different places, different backgrounds, different experiences, and worship together with one heart and one mind, united under your Son, Jesus. So, Father, I pray the things that we say, the things that we do this morning, would be honoring to you. I pray that we would be built up by your word this morning. We're grateful for your word that... You've given us this gift of your grace that builds us up and encourages us and holds us accountable and convicts us of sin. Father, thank you for your word. and Thank you for your son who died for us. Thank you for your spirit who lives in us and amongst us. And thank you for your church, this community, this family of believers that we have. Be with us this morning as we hear from your word. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. Well, everything we read today in John chapter seven and eight, all of it takes place over the course of several days at the Feast of Booths. Some of your Bibles may call it the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a joyous feast in Judea. It lasted one week and it was perhaps the most popular of the three major feasts every year, perhaps the most well attended. It took place every fall. And it was intended to celebrate bringing in a fruitful harvest, but also to remember God's provision for his people in the past, back when they wandered in the wilderness, back before they entered the promised land. So at the beginning of chapter seven, Jesus's brothers encourage him to go to this feast, to go to Judea. I mean, that could be a really big stage for him to perform some of his miracles. And with such a big stage, he may even be able to win back some of the disciples who abandoned him at the end of chapter six. But Jesus refuses to go with his brothers. He knew the Jews were seeking to kill him. And in Jesus's words in verse six, his time had not yet come. That will be important here in just a moment. Jesus's brothers don't set his agenda. The religious leaders don't set his agenda. God sets Jesus's agenda. And Jesus, the son, is in perfect alignment with God, the father. Now, Jesus does end up going to the feast later in the week on God's terms, of course. But he still flies under the radar when he gets there. But then as chapter seven continues, a pattern begins to emerge. Jesus teaches in the temple People have mixed reactions to his teachings. Some believe, some don't believe, some are somewhere in the middle. And the religious leaders try to arrest him. We do get a quick visit from our old friend Nicodemus, if you remember him, the one Jesus said must be born again. Nicodemus comes to Jesus' defense against the religious leaders. He tries to reason with them, but he's quickly shouted down. And yet both times the religious leaders try to arrest Jesus in chapter 7. Both times they fail. Why? How? Well, perhaps we already saw the answer in verse 6. Or maybe again in John chapter 7, verse 30. They fail to arrest him because simply his hour had not yet come. God is the one orchestrating Jesus' fate. Not his brothers, not the religious leaders, and God isn't quite ready for Jesus to go to the cross just yet. And then at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, there is a famous yet brief story that some choose to ignore. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But for now, let's pick up in John chapter 8, verse 12. But as we read this passage, I want you to be thinking about two different images that we'll see here. The first image is light. What does light do? What is its purpose? What's the difference between light and darkness? That's image number one. And image number two to be thinking about is the image of a slave. What is a slave? What makes someone a slave? And how could someone go from being a slave... To being free. So let's pick up in John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me. Bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. We've already heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of God. Judge, living water, bread of life. But now he calls himself the light of the world. At the Feast of Tabernacles, when this is taking place, it was common for people to light large torches in the temple court to dance around with lanterns in celebration. But Jesus says that none of those lights compare to him. Now you think about light. There are images of light all over the pages of Scripture. Famous passages like Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You think about the book of Exodus, where God's presence in the wilderness comes in the form of a pillar of fire to light the Israelites way at night. You could even think back to John chapter one, verses one through 18, the first week of this sermon series where we saw light used to describe Jesus, the light of men which shines in the darkness, the true light which enlightens everyone. And then later in the New Testament, there's that beautiful passage, Revelation 21, saying that in the new heavens and the new earth, when God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven once and for all. When sin and evil and Satan are done away with and that day there will be no more sun, no more moon, they won't be necessary anymore because God himself will give his people light. Simply being in his presence will be their light. So again, what does light do? What's its purpose? Well, light shows us the way to go when we can't figure it out on our own. Light helps us see things rightly and clearly, rather than distorted and foggy. Light exposes things that are hidden, things both good and bad. But then as Jesus continues in verses 21 through 30, he tells the people that he's preparing to leave them and they won't be able to follow him. They're confused about what he means, but Jesus sums up the main point pretty simply. He says if they do not believe in him, they will die in their sins. And then he says in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many Believed in him. Because Jesus is the true light. It is only through him that we can see things clearly. But then, on top of that, being in the presence of the perfect, sinless light of the world, being in the presence of Jesus, that exposes our sinfulness. Now, think about that. That hurts at first because what we see is pretty ugly. But it's actually a wonderful gift of God's grace, because when we're forced to see our own sinfulness, we're also made aware of our need for forgiveness. We're made aware of our need for mercy. And the light of the world, Jesus, he brings about forgiveness and he brings about mercy at the cross when the son of man is lifted up. It's ironic that Jesus' light shines brightest when the religious leaders thought they had finally snuffed his light out. And it's because the Son of God died on that cross. It's because the Son of Man was lifted up on that cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem that Paul can say things like this, Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The true light, the light of the world, brings us out of darkness through the cross. And it's because of the cross that Peter can say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that God is the one who calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's all because the Son of Man was lifted up. Now we continue in verse 31 of John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So we spent a few minutes talking about that imagery of light, but what about that second image we mentioned? That's the image of slavery. Because according to Jesus, all it takes for you to become a slave to sin is to commit sin. Just one. Now think about slavery. Slavery is a dehumanizing practice. Slavery treats people like animals to be bred for work or simply products to be exchanged for money. Well, sin does the exact same thing. Sin dehumanizes us. Because sin makes us go from being sons and daughters of God to being slaves. Because of sin, we are cast out of God's house, the same way Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And in order for anything to change, a price has to be paid by someone else on our behalf. Jesus says the only way that a slave can be in the master's house is if the son brings him into the master's house. That's still true of us. Now, does Jesus referring to you as a slave, does that rub you the wrong way? Well, if so, you're not alone. Because the Jews who believed in him don't appear to believe for very long. They immediately take offense at Jesus calling them slaves. I mean, if anybody's slaves, it's certainly not them. They have the best bloodline of anybody. They are descendants of Abraham himself. They are royalty. How dare Jesus call them slaves? But Jesus doesn't back down. In fact, he uses one of the oldest arguments in the book. One of the arguments that you hear on the playground. My dad is better than your dad. John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father... You would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. So Jesus tells them that no matter who their ancestors are, no matter how impressive their bloodline, no matter how good their family may have been, they are slaves to sin. In fact, they're not even truly children of God. They're not even truly children of Abraham, because if anyone is their father, Satan's the closest bet. They have more in common with him than they do with Abraham. After all, they're the ones opposing God, just like Satan does. And they do say, like father, like son. Satan is the one who lied to Adam and Eve about God's desires. And Adam and Eve were all too willing to believe him. He's the one who tempted Adam and Eve to disobey, playing a direct hand in their spiritual and eventually physical death. He's a liar and a murderer. And those who reject Jesus in the gospel of John are acting a whole lot more like Satan than they are like Abraham or Moses or God himself. Now, Paul picks up on this theme of slavery in his letters. And Paul makes it clear that it's only through Jesus that slaves can become free that slaves can become sons and daughters of God. Consider what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come. Think about that phrase, when the fullness of time had come. We've seen that phrase in John. His time had not yet come. But Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know, the law in the Old Testament did a lot of important things. It showed people that they were sinners. It told people something about the character of God. It was meant to separate the Israelites from all the other people around them and All of those things are good, but it couldn't transform sinners and it couldn't transform slaves into sons and daughters of God. And as Paul says repeatedly in the book of Romans, the opposite of slavery isn't unbridled freedom. The opposite of slavery is not just doing what you want, because then you just become a slave to your passions and a slave to your desires. The greatest freedom, the opposite of slavery, is having someone, having a God, who is actually worth serving. As Jesus says in John chapter 8, those verses we just read, verses 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Those who are free are Jesus' disciples. Now, of course, unsurprisingly, in the Gospel of John, the Jews don't take this message very well. They call Jesus every name in the book. They say he's an illegitimate child. They call him a Samaritan. They say he's demon-possessed. But Jesus doesn't move an inch. And as chapter 8 comes to a close, he makes his most ridiculous claim yet. John chapter 8, starting in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So Jesus claims that he's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He refers to himself the same way God referred to himself when he met Moses at the burning bush. I am. You know, after a claim like that, there has never been a better time to arrest Jesus than now. They have every right to maybe even try to kill him. And yet again, Jesus gets away. He slips through their fingers. How? Well, as we mentioned earlier, while his time is getting closer in the Gospel of John, his time simply hasn't yet come. You know, we need the light of the world. We need Jesus. Because light exposes things. And being in the presence of Jesus exposes that we are guilty of walking in darkness. Now that may not sound like a whole lot of fun, having your sin exposed, because it's not. But like when we go to the doctor and receive a bad diagnosis, we'd rather the doctor tell us the ugly truth so that we can get treatment, rather than sugarcoat things until it's too late. The light of the world exposes that we are slaves to sin. And even though it might sound insensitive or it might sound outdated to some people, we must hear that if we are going to be set free. And thankfully, as we read in John's gospel, as we sit here this morning as believers purchased by the blood of Christ, Jesus' time has come. He has made our sinfulness known. The Son of Man has been lifted up on the cross. The Son of Man has risen from the grave. He's ascended to be with God, and he will return. That means at this very time, people like you and people like me don't have to be slaves anymore. We can be free. We can be sons and daughters of God himself. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, there it is again, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We can be reconciled to God. We don't have to stay as slaves. We can be sons and daughters. Now, we mentioned that story right in between chapter 7 and 8, the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8. That story is often referred to as the woman caught in adultery. The way the story goes is that the religious leaders catch a woman committing adultery red-handed. They drag her to Jesus' presence. I'm sure it's a shameful, embarrassing experience for her. And they demand that Jesus cast judgment on her. They demand that he fall in line with the law of Moses, that a woman like this should be stoned. Now, of course, in the law of Moses, the man should be stoned too, but the religious leaders don't seem concerned about the man Maybe he just got away. But Jesus refuses to execute the law of Moses on her. What he discovers, what he exposes, is that the religious leaders who dragged this woman to his presence didn't care about the law. They didn't care about justice. They didn't care about holiness. They didn't care about this woman's sin. They were just using her as a prop to make Jesus slip up. And Jesus exposes the religious leaders' hypocrisy. He makes it clear that they have no authority to judge this woman. But he who is without sin cast the first stone. The religious leaders walk away. But even as Jesus spares this woman's life, he exposes her sin as well. She's not innocent either. That's why Jesus tells her to go and sin no more. The true light, the light of the world exposes sin. But he also brings grace upon grace. As we read in chapter 1. The light of the world didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. Now that woman caught in adultery, she was a slave to sin. And while we don't know what happened to her after she dusted herself off and headed home, I like to think that her encounter with Jesus would have changed her. In the same way, I pray that our encounter with Jesus, the light of the world, the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, I pray that having our sin exposed before our very eyes, as painful as that might be, I pray that that would spur us on to faith. That it would spur us on to repentance. That it would leave us in awe of the grace of God. That we would be continually transformed and continually reminded that we are no longer hopeless slaves of sin, but we are joyful sons and daughters. People who have been reconciled. People who have been redeemed. People who have been bought. With the body and blood of Christ. People who are welcomed back. Into the household of God. As wonderful family members. In God's family. Let's pray. Father we sit here this morning as. Former slaves of sin. We sit here as. As. Believers who at one time were dominated by sin. But we sit here also now as sons and daughters in your family. It is not through our good works that that's happened. It's not because we were born into the right family. It's not because we've done all the right things and said all the right things and jumped through all the right religious hoops. It is because the Son of Man was lifted up. It's because at the right time, you sent your son to die for the ungodly. And we thank you for that. I pray that as we leave here, we would live as the sons and daughters that we already are. I pray that we would leave here joyful, that we would leave here confident, not in ourselves, but in your son's cross and resurrection that we would leave here in awe of the grace that you have shown us. As Mark mentioned earlier, not taking for granted the grace that you have shown us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son who came and lived and died and rose and ascended and one day will return. We thank you for the light of the world. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. According to the words of Jesus and according to the words of Paul, if you are not yet a believer in Christ, you are still a slave to sin. And in the book of Romans, Paul makes it clear that that doesn't get you anything. It doesn't bring about fruit in this life, and it certainly doesn't bring about fruit in eternity either. So if you have questions this morning about what it means to go from being a slave to sin to a son or daughter of God, talk to one of our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room close to the end of our service. they would be happy to pray with you, happy to talk with you, happy to answer your questions. We're going to stand and sing one more song, and then once we're done singing, we'll take communion. And we ask that if you are a believer in Jesus, you take communion with us. So.